Have you noticed that the attacks on Jesus and Christianity have been increasing in both frequency and intensity? Why do you think that is happening, and why is it significant? For a discussion of these issues, stay tuned. Lamb and Lion Ministries presents Christ in Prophecy, a program that focuses on the fundamentals of Bible prophecy, showing how current events in the news relate to biblical predictions of end-time events and the soon return of Jesus. Now, here's your host, Dr. David Reagan. Greetings in the name of Jesus, our blessed hope, and welcome to Christ in Prophecy. I am delighted to have my associate Nathan Jones with me as we take a look at the increasing attacks on Jesus and Christianity that are appearing today in books and films, television programs, and websites. Nathan, as I said at the beginning of the program, there is no doubt that these attacks are increasing in frequency and intensity. And you might have noticed I mentioned websites as well. Yes, definitely. Why is this happening? Why do we see so much of this going on, on both Christianity and Jesus? I think uh, you'll let Jesus answer that question. Because the apostles asked him that same question, like, how do we know what the end times are going to be like and all? We can go to Luke 21, in chapter uh, 21, and start with 10. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilence in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this... They will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. This will result in you being witnesses to them. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends. And they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me, but not a hair on your head will perish. By standing firm you will gain life. So Jesus said the closer he's getting to the end times, to his return, the more disasters and signs will show. But one of those signs is increasing persecutions against Christians, and we are seeing that today. But you know, we live in a country that has a great Christian heritage. We live in a country where Christianity has been the predominant religion. We live in a country where 85, 80 to 85% of the people still profess to be Christians. And yet, there is this increasing persecution of Christianity and Christians and attacks on Jesus. What's going on in our country? I believe that the more we sin, the more we have to defend ourselves against knowing what is right. Because once we go right, we have to do something. We have to repent. We have to turn to to God. So there must be a God. So it seems like there's a great push amongst people who hate God, the God-haters, to get anything that would let them know that their sins are wrong out. So they push the Bible out. They push the Ten Commandments out. They even push Christians out of any kind of sphere of influence so that they can continue to live the lives they want to live in, which is rebellion against God. Well, there's no doubt that there's a an increasing uh, 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 virulence of attacks by both uh, humanists, atheists, uh, agnostics. Uh, but also I think one of the problems in addition to that is that so many of these people who claim to be Christians are really just simply cultural Christians. They, oh, yeah. They're just born into a Christian family. They go r- raised going to church. They have no personal relationship with Jesus, never read the Bible, never pray, but claim to be Christians. And so they're not really all that upset about uh, secularism and, and, and the increasing secularism in our society. And especially, too, when the laws aren't protected anymore and they're not enforced, then people feel they can get away with a lot more. And we're seeing it used to be taboo to mock Christianity. Right. And now there's no repercussions for doing it. In fact, so it's open season. It's open season, right. And we're not protected by our legal system anymore. As a matter of fact, we find more increasing attacks by judges yes. and by legislatures. Yes. 
And so it just continues. And it's crazy, too, because the more they pull the moral structure of our country down, the more our country loses power and ability, and then it'll destroy the country. So it's great. It's just evil. It's pure evil. Well, yes, evil is multiplying. And and Jesus himself said that one of the signs of the end times would be that society would become like it was in the days of uh, Noah. And if you go back to Genesis 6 and take a look, you'll see that in the days of Noah, the two major characteristics of society were immorality and violence. And that's where we are in the United States today, increasing immorality and violence. I think there's another supernatural thing operating here, and that is Satan knows Bible prophecy. (laughs) That's We know that because it says in the book of Revelation that when when he tries that in the middle of the tribulation, he's going to try to take heaven one last time. And he will be thrown down to earth by Michael and his archangels and will not be allowed any access to heaven whatsoever. And it says that when that happens, he knows his time is short. So he knows Bible prophecy. And as he looks around today and he sees the signs of the times, Mm -hmm. I think he can put two and two together and say, hey, I don't have much time left. Now the church seems to be oblivious to the signs of the times, but Satan knows them. And I think because of that, he has launched uh, motivating attacks and more vicious than ever before on Christianity, Jesus, and the Bible. Those are the three things that are attacked all the time uh, because he wants to take as many people to hell with him as he possibly can. Yes, definitely. Isn't it strange and kind of ironic that Satan is probably the best student of Bible prophecy? <laughs> I mean, he knows Bible prophecy forward and back because it tells him that he's going to lose and Jesus is going to win. And those who follow Jesus are going to win. And he doesn't want the world to know that. So as he gets closer to his defeat, the attacks on Christianity increase in frequency and intensity, just like all the birth pains. And I think that the, the focus of those attacks clearly shows that Satan recognizes that Jesus Christ was really who he said he was, that he was yes. God in the flesh. He doesn't, he's not orchestrating attacks against Muhammad. Mm-mm. He's not orchestrating attacks against uh, uh, Islam. He, he could care less about that. He's orchestrating attacks against the truth. In fact, I've always pointed out uh, for many, many years that, that I consider the blasphemous use of the name of Jesus as a curse word as evidence that he truly was who he said he was. How many people have you ever seen who used Judas as a curse word, or Mohammed as a curse yes. word, or Abraham as a curse word, or Buddha as a curse word? No. Satan motivates even people who are not Christians to use Jesus as a curse word because he hates Jesus, mm-hmm. and it's a supernatural motivation to attack Jesus. Exactly. And the attacks are getting worse and worse. I just went to uh, opendoors.org's website, opendoorsusa.org, and they're a ministry that follows the persecution of Christians. I mean, as bad as we have it in the United States with constant laws being put against us and rulings, I mean, look in the rest of the world. Uh, in 2009, a gun and club attacks on a Presbyterian church in a community of Sangwali in Pakistan left 16 people wounded and one dead. In 2005, they reported two Christian men were working in Bangladesh were hacked to death. In Kathmandu, Nepal, at the Assumption Church, there was a bomb place. Two, William, two women and 14 others were injured. And even one of the own missionaries that we support in Pakistan just recently had his church, a bomb put in front of it, four dead, including a mother of a baby. Well, it's going on all over the world, but it's certainly intensifying here in this country. If you wear a cross to work, you may be persecuted. You may not get promoted. If you are a college faculty member and let it be known that you're a Christian who believes in the Bible, you probably better forget about Mm -hmm. uh, any kind of advancement or getting tenure 
because there is this orchestrated attack against Christianity in our society today, and it is growing fiercer every day. In fact, this is one of the reasons that I recently wrote a book, which has just been published, this book here called Jesus, the Lamb and the Lion. I wrote it out of one one primary concern, and that is that everywhere I look today, I'm seeing attacks on the divinity of Jesus. Uh, even by Christians, professing Christians who are saying, well, you know, he really wasn't God in the flesh. He was just a great man. He was a great prophet, whatever. I'm seeing every time I turn around, there's a movie, uh, there's a book, uh, there's a website uh, attacking Christianity, attacking the Bible, and attacking Jesus and saying that he was not who he said he was. Glad you brought up the book because I have I just finished reading it and I have lots of questions to ask you about it. Well, let me catch my breath and we'll go there, okay? Okay, sounds good. Welcome back to Christ in Prophecy. Dr. Reagan and I have been discussing the increasing attacks on the biblical view of Jesus. In response to those attacks, a new book by Dr. Reagan has just been published in which he defines and defends the biblical Jesus. Hey, Dave, why don't we start by asking you to define the biblical view of Jesus? Who does the Bible say that Jesus is? Well, I think the Bible clearly says that Jesus is God in the flesh. That's, that's who He was, that's who He is that He was God in the flesh. And, and that is taught in both the Old Testament and New Testament, as you well know. Uh, for example, one of the major prophecies in the Old Testament about the uh, Messiah is that He would be Emmanuel. And God with us, right? God with us. That's what Emmanuel means in Hebrew, God with us. And uh, in Isaiah 9-6, it says that He will be mighty God, eternal Father, among other titles that are given to him, like Prince of Peace. Well, hey, that's, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that the Messiah is going to be God in the flesh from just those two prophecies alone. And uh, Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. So if he truly was the Messiah, he was God in the flesh. At his baptism, God spoke from the heavens, and it was heard, the voice was heard. It said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Jews themselves recognized that if you claim to be the Son of God, you were claiming to be deity in the flesh. In fact, uh, when Jesus would use that term of Himself, they would immediately say, you're a blasphemer mm -hmm. because you're claiming to be God in the flesh. They knew what that meant. They were he, ready to stone Him, right? Well, that, that's right. Um, in Revelation chapter 1, God speaks and says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. But in Revelation 21, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. Well, things equal to the same thing are equal to each other. That's one of the fundamental principles I learned in geometry. And it's true here. Here is God saying, I'm the beginning and the end. Here is Jesus saying, I'm the beginning and the end. They're one. They are, he was God in the flesh. That's incidentally one of the strongest arguments to use with a Jehovah's Witness who claims that Jesus was not God in the flesh. Uh, to, to refer to Revelation 1 and Revelation 21. In John 3.16, probably the best known verse in all the Bible, God said that uh, I'm sending my only begotten Son. So these are just a few examples that I could give and examples that I give in, in, in the book of the fact that uh, Jesus truly was what He said He was. He was God in the flesh. But the world tries to write Him off, Nathan, as you yes. know, well know. The world says, oh well, He was a good man. He was a great prophet. Uh, he was a great teacher. Uh, but, you know, beyond that, that, that's all it was. For example, Islam recognizes him as a great prophet. Even humanists 
And atheists and agnostics will say, oh, well, he was a great man, one of the greatest men who ever lived. He was probably the greatest teacher who ever lived. But that's all he was. Well, one of my favorite writers is C.S. Lewis. Uh, I don't know how well our audience knows C.S. Lewis, but he was an intellectual. He was a man with a photographic memory. He was a great professor of uh, medieval English at uh, Oxford University. They at least saw the Chronicles of Narnia movies, right? Well, all that, yes, the Chronicle of Narnia. Narnia. He, He wrote many, many books. But what most people don't know is that he was an agnostic until the age of 30. And it was when he was about 30 years old that he came to accept the Lord. And in his book, Mere Christianity, he tells some of the reasons why. And one of them had to do with having to come to grips with Jesus Christ. And he wrote a statement that has become a classic in Christian literature. And I want to read this statement because it is a great argument. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I can't accept His claim to be God. That's what people say. Now, here's what he says. Mm -hmm. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He was not left that open to us. He did not intend to. I mean, he's either what, a a good man does not go around and say, I forgive you of your sins. I grant you salvation. Mm -hmm. He's either a lunatic, a madman, or, or he's who he said he was. Yeah. God in the flesh. Or a liar. Isn't that the, oh, there you go. Yeah, okay. A madman, a, a liar. Or and if he was truth. a liar, he wasn't a good man. In your new book, how do you go about proving that Jesus is God in the flesh? Well, I do it in a number of ways. Uh, for one thing, I talk about fulfilled prophecy, which we've already talked about. But I, I do some other things, too. I, I point out, for example, that there are 109 specific prophecies that Jesus fulfilled uh, in His uh, first coming. Uh, and, and some of these are prophecies that are well known to the people like uh, uh, he would be born in Bethlehem, which was written 500 years uh, before Specific his birth. Specific Bethlehem, right? Yeah, but what people don't often realize is there were two Bethlehems, one up by the Sea of Galilee, one down there in Jerusalem. And the Bible says specifically he will be born in Bethlehem Ephrata, which means it's the Bethlehem near Jerusalem. And, and there's many, many prophecies like that. Psalm 22 says he will be crucified. Well, that's not the way Jews uh, uh, executed people. They execute them by stoning them to death. But that's the way the Romans did it. And that was written a thousand years before the Messiah was born. So I talk a lot about fulfilled prophecy and about the fact that, uh, in fact, I have a whole chapter about probability and the fact that you you cannot write these uh, prophecies off as accidental, that that's beyond the realm of probability. And I show the actual statistics uh, of the fact that these are beyond the realm of probability to be fulfilled accidentally in the life of anyone. I talk a lot about symbolic prophecy and how uh, different symbols in the Bible pointed to Jesus, like the tabernacle, uh, the uh, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the Feast of Israel were all symbolic prophecies that Jesus uh, fulfilled. Uh, so I, I go into a lot of detail about that, and then I go to witnesses, and I talk about witnesses of the divinity of Jesus, the witness of the Trinity, uh, and I give many examples of in the Old Testament, Old Testament scriptures that show that there is 
uh, that, that God exists three persons in one, where he refers to himself in the plural mm-hmm. uh, over and over. Uh, I talk about the witness of God the Father, how he witnessed that Jesus was God in the flesh at his baptism and at his transfiguration. I talk about the witness of Jesus himself. Uh, one of the most famous teachers in Christendom recently said that Jesus never claimed to be Messiah. Jesus what? claimed over and over to be Messiah. Exactly. Specific statements. I am the Messiah. He said that before the Sanhedrin Council to the chief priest. He, he used the term Son of Man to refer to Himself. That's a, a, a Messianic title from Daniel. He used the term Son of God uh, to refer to Himself. He applied Messianic prophecy to Himself. He identified Himself with God the Father. He said, if you've seen Me, you've seen God the Father. Mm-hmm. He said, the Father and I are one. John I mean, 10.30, yeah. I give page after page after page. In fact, the longest chapter in this book, chapter 7, is evidence of the divinity of Jesus Christ. And it's just one Scripture after another. And when you read all that, I want to tell you, there's no way you can say Jesus was not God in the flesh. Welcome back to Christ in Prophecy and my interview of Dr. (laughs) David Reagan regarding his new book, Jesus, the Lamb and the Lion. And Dave, you talked a lot about evidences that the Bible gives that Jesus is God in the flesh. You told us that prophecy, Jesus fulfilling prophecy, the life of Jesus, the testimony of the Father. Would you add anything else? Well, yes. As I said, this is the Mm -hmm. longest chapter in the book about the divinity of Jesus, the evidence of the divinity. And there's a lot of other things I mentioned. For example, I mentioned the fact that uh, He went about uh, forgiving sins and granting salvation. Only God can do that. Mm -hmm. I talk about His miracles. I talk about the witness of angels. Many times angels witness. For example, when he was born, Luke 2, we're told that the angels announced that today in the city of David there's been born to you a Savior uh, who is the Messiah, the Lord. Uh, There is the witness of Satan and his demons. Satan recognized Jesus as God in the flesh uh, when he was tempting him in the wilderness. The demons did. Uh, One time when Jesus delivered a demon from a man in Capernaum, the demon cried out, I know who you are, O Holy One of God. Uh, The witness of the the apostles. Uh, You have many, many verses in here from the writings of Peter where he talks about there is salvation in no one else under heaven except uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle John, the Apostle Paul. I give quote after quote after quote. The, the, the witness of the book of Hebrews. We don't know for sure who wrote that book, but uh, hey, whoever wrote it said, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature. And then there are many other witnesses of the deity of Jesus. Uh, for example, many people think Peter was the first one who confessed Jesus as the Son of God. No, he wasn't. Nathaniel was. Nathaniel said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Uh, the, 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 the centurion at the cross looked up and said, truly this was the Son of God. So I go in great detail giving Scripture after Scripture after Scripture. And, and the point of it all is that the idea that Jesus was God in the flesh was not some Johnny-come-lately concept that was conjured up by a bunch of ignorant fishermen uh, on the shores of Galilee long after He was dead. No, no it was prophesied ahead of time. It was fulfilled in His life. It was demonstrated in His life. What I love the point, too, that you made is that the lives were changed because if oh. Jesus wasn't God in the flesh, lives wouldn't change. I think of friends that have... Well, of course, that, that is the continuing greatest evidence of all yes. that Jesus was yes. who He said He was. is because when people put their faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, and truly in Him personally, not just become a cultural Christian, but mm-hmm. put their faith in Him, lives are transformed. And you and I know that for sure. Amen. My life was transformed, yours was. But sometimes the transformations are so radical, like Jack Hollinsworth, featured singer on this program who lived on the streets homeless for 20 years, tried to kill himself three different times. And when he met the Lord Jesus Christ, life totally transformed. 
forms of ministry, goes all over the nation today, singing and teaching and, and, and focusing on the homeless and prisoners and so on. This is the kind of thing that happens. And, and it's the greatest evidence, continuing evidence that Jesus really was who He said He was. Amen. Amen. Uh, I had another question. Okay. Chapter 8, the pre-incarnate oh. Jesus. That is a hot topic, a widely debated. Can you tell us about that chapter? Well, I, I enjoyed putting that one in there. i tell you one of the I reasons I enjoyed it. it so much is because I decided to use a different format in writing it. And that is that I had a man who wrote me one time and gave me a whole bunch of questions about the pre-incarnate Jesus. And I thought, you know, I'll just respond to his questions. And I love to do that. Uh-huh. So that whole chapter is question and answer. Uh, like the first one is, what scriptural evidence is it that Jesus existed before his incarnation? Well, For example, Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6, Isaiah goes to the temple to mourn the death of his king, the only king he'd ever known. And when he goes there, suddenly he sees the king of kings and lord of lords lifted up high and glorious in the temple. Then in the New Testament, over in the New Testament we are told, point blank, that when Isaiah saw the Lord lifted up high and holy, he saw Jesus Christ. Now that's what we call a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. And there are many pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament. Usually He appears as what's called the angel of the Lord. That doesn't mean He's an angel. It means He is God's angel like my wife is my angel. It means He's a messenger of the Lord. Angel means messenger. At the burning bush. When Moses saw the burning bush God, it says, God spoke to him out of the burning bush and told him, take your shoes off, this ground is holy. The next verse says, and who spoke to him was the angel of the Lord. So it was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. And there are many, many of those pre-incarnate appearances. My favorite is Gideon of uh, Judges 6, 22. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he explained, Oh, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. He saw God incarnate. It's yes. proof and, that and Jesus see, that's, was there. Again, uh, the Bible says no man has ever seen God the Father, has never seen His face. He is spirit. But they have seen Jesus Christ in pre-incarnate appearances. Psalm 2, uh, He appears to David and, and says, Today God has promised me that one day I will rule over all the nations of the world. He speaks that to David in Psalm 2. So there are many pre-incarnate appearances and I had a lot of fun writing it. And of course I end that chapter by talking about whether or not Melchizedek Yes. was a pre-incarnate appearance. And uh, that's highly debatable. And I present both sides and people have to draw their own conclusions. That was a whole new new topic for <laughs> me was reading that one. Okay. Well, what about Jesus' miracles? Do uh, they prove that He is God in the flesh? Well, that's what the miracles were all about. Mm-hmm. The miracles of Jesus were for the purpose of proving or affirming, let's say affirming His divinity. There's 35 miracles of Jesus that are mentioned in the uh, Scriptures. But we know there were many more because one of the last verses of the Gospel of John is that if all the things were written that Jesus did, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain them. You know, it would just be so great. But there are 35 specifically mentioned. And and it's interesting, there are different types of miracles. Uh, For example, uh, there is the miracle that shows that He is the Lord of time. Water into wine instantly. Yeah. Didn't need any time. He is the Lord of time, just as He spoke the creation into existence. You know, the God of, of atheists is time. They think that if you have enough time, you can do anything. If you've got 10,000 monkeys, type in for 10 million years, they'll produce the works of Shakespeare accidentally. Time plus nothing equals something. Yeah, yeah. But no, yeah. Uh, God doesn't need time. So He was the Lord of time. When He uh, stilled the, ocean, uh, the sea, He was the Lord of nature. When He walked on the water, 
He was the Lord of physics, the Lord of the laws of nature. He created them. He can violate them. Uh, when, uh, he, uh, when he uh, would say to a person, I don't need to come and touch the person to heal. I can speak it and they will be healed. He was the Lord of space. Uh, so, you know, it, it just goes on and on. Uh, when he was uh, cast out demons, he was the Lord of the supernatural. So, these are evidences that he really was who he said he was. And the evidence is overwhelming. I mean, these are firsthand accounts that we have in the gospel. They're not just things people made up, mm-hmm. but they were, mm-hmm. people came from all over. They came because they wanted to see miracles. And, and, and he was disturbed about that. He wanted them to hear, come because of his teachings. They came because of miracles. They wanted, they wanted healings. They wanted um, uh, bread. They wanted whatever. And he was saying, well, that's fine. But, you know, here's my, pre- my, my teachings are the greatest thing, not my miracles. <laughs> well, one of his teachings, you, you flat out, John ten twenty five. You write, uh, the works I do in my Father's name, these testify to me. And later, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father fantastic verse on that. Yeah, it really is. And that's what it was all about when it came to miracles. Now, two of the miracles really beat up is the virgin birth of Jesus, totally written off by most liberal theologians, theologians and then the resurrection of Jesus, yeah. that somehow he... he two central avoided. events of his life, the two events that point to the fact that he truly was God in the flesh. And in fact, the resurrection is so important that Paul says, if you don't believe in the resurrection, you don't have any hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't even be a Christian if you, if you don't believe in the resurrection. Any person who claims to be a Christian and denies the resurrection is not a Christian. Amen. Uh, they could call themselves one, but that'd be like me going in a garage and saying, I'm a car. You know, I, I'm not. Yeah. Uh, well, those are the two key ones. And because they are so key, I have entire chapters devoted, two chapters devoted to each one. One to the reality of the virgin birth and then to the evidence of it. Another one to the reality of the resurrection and then another one to the evidence of it. Mm-hmm. And I could go on all day about both of them as you well know. But uh, the folks are going to have to get the book to, to <laughs> see all of, all of the arguments that I present there because yes. I give a lot of arguments right out of the Scriptures themselves that I think prove beyond a shadow of a doubt Jesus was born of a virgin and Jesus was resurrected from the dead. If he was neither, then we don't have a God in the flesh, do we? We don't have a God in the flesh. It was essential, absolutely essential, that he be virgin-born and that he be resurrected from the dead in order for him to be God in the flesh, in order for him to be the Savior of this world. Well, Nathan, I want to thank you for your questions and for not uh, nailing me with a zinger, you know. Uh, (laughs) Folks, uh, uh, Nathan is our web minister, and as such, he is on the Internet eight hours each day responding to questions from people literally all over the world. Nathan, tell people how they can uh, contact you on our website. Well, our website address is www.lamblion.com. You can find articles, TV shows. Uh, we've got a Facebook group. You can talk to other Christians. We have a blog if you need a daily dose of Bible prophecy. We have an e-newsletter. You can sign up. And you can get great resources like Dr. Reagan's new book, Jesus, the Lamb, and the Lion, off our website. Well, folks, if you've got a zinger of a question, send it to him, please. <laughs> send it to him. Well, folks, that's our program for this week. I hope it has been a blessing to you and helping you to understand that Jesus really was who He said He was, namely, God in the flesh. Until next week, the Lord willing, this is Dave Reagan speaking for Lamb and Lion Ministries saying, Look up, be watchful, for our redemption is drawing near. 
Was the virgin birth foretold in the Bible through prophecy? Did the Jewish prophets write about the resurrection of Jesus? Was the deity of Jesus the Messiah revealed in the Old Testament? Is Jesus found throughout the Bible in symbolic prophecy? Have you heard that Jesus appeared on earth thousands of years before his birth in Bethlehem, but never understood how or why? If you would like answers to questions like these, get your copy of the book, Jesus the Lamb and the Lion, for just $15 plus shipping. This book presents a sweeping survey of Bible prophecy that relates to the first and second comings of Jesus. You will also gain new insights into the miracles of Jesus, and it will show the amazing accuracy of the Bible by the probability factors presented. You will benefit from the extensive evidence given for the virgin birth, the deity of Jesus, the resurrection, and more. Like all of Dr. Reagan's books, you will find this to be down-to-earth and easy to understand. Enjoy your copy for a gift of $15 plus shipping by going to lamblion.com or call the number you see on the screen. Christ in Prophecy is made possible through the faithful and generous support of viewers like you. Please consider making a donation to Lamb and Lion Ministries so that we can continue broadcasting the message of Jesus' soon return. Thank you and God bless you. Thank you for joining us on today's Christ in Prophecy, a presentation of Lamb and Lion Ministries, a non-denominational ministry dedicated to teaching the fundamentals of biblical prophecy and proclaiming the soon return of Jesus.